Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Les Stroud about Wild Outside. Wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title in the episode description, and it takes you to a link to purchase the book through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BooksOnPod. This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, and I've totally enjoyed this great conversation. Hello, readers. Les Stroud is a survival expert, filmmaker, author, and musician who's best known as the sole force behind the Survivor Man TV series. His newest book is titled Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man. Les, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's beautiful here right now, so I'm good. Great. So this book was made as a sort of inspirational, informative guide for kids who are interested in adventurous exploring. You started filming and showing yourself surviving in remote locations around the world after years of training in survival, adventure, and filmmaking. Where did your training begin as a kid, even if you may not have realized it at the time? Oh, well, I mean, I was a a child of the 70s, so my training... uh, it's not very glamorous, but it definitely was effective, and that was through television. I was a very big fan of uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, Tarzan movies. Uh, these these shows and films really kind of lit the fire uh, in me in terms of wanting to have adventure in the wilderness, adventure in jungles, adventure on mountains and in the oceans. So, yeah, that, that's, that's really where it started. I didn't come from an adventurous family. I didn't have access to much of that. Um, there wasn't really even that much going on at the time. So, uh, it was really out of reach for me as a kid, uh, with the exception of my fascination, which led me into my own backyard and and local parks, that sort of thing. And that is, you know, that's where I found my adventure in those days was going to the local ravine. So in your mind, surviving an adventure, it comes down to four different elements, which you break down in this book, preparing, observing, reacting, and also adapting. As far as the preparation is concerned, that does include a number of different things, like researching the area, gathering proper supplies and tools, and seeking out local survival experts in that new place. But, Les, a lot of people claim to be experts. Is there any one question that you ask to truly test how knowledgeable that person is about the area? Yeah, and that's a good point, and it's a tricky point, is determining uh, who the, the, the real wonderful, intelligent, and, and experienced instructors are, and, and, and who isn't if they're just doing as a business. To be honest with you, that problem didn't used to exist. Uh, back in the day, so to speak, uh, those types of instructors were there making very little money, but they were there because of their passion. When, when it became popular, you know, people thought they could make money doing it, you do start to get a lot of people with inexperience sort of jumping on the bandwagon. You used to get that even in kids camping, you know, you get, you get um, people who would be, you know, 21 years of age, and they'd be thinking that they can lead trips with, you know, 18 students and, and the, the issues and the things that can go on. I mean, you can lose life that way. Things can be, can get turned very bad very quickly but to answer your question it is a little a little it is a little tricky you want to research your your instructors uh, i'm going to suggest that people 
that have a bit more experience in life are more likely to have had enough years doing adventures to get a lot of adventures and trips under their belt. Um, you'd say, well, look at, you know, so-and-so, I mean, they did kids camp all the way growing up and then they guided kids trips and they're only 23, but they're really experienced. And that may be the case. Or maybe some people like that, but um, you want someone who's really a lifer. I like the people who are lifers in this stuff. They, they, they teach it, they love it, they share it, you know, and they would, whether it was a business or not. Um, and then to be a little more specific though, I will just a tangent with an anecdote uh, an anecdotal reference to, is to say that when I would seek out specifically survival instructors, so now I'm not speaking just adventure, but specifically uh, or all encompassing adventure, I'm speaking specifically survival. I found that the last, this is weird, but the last skill that most survival instructors learn tends to be wild edible plants. It's really strange. It's, it's, it's the last thing. And it's because the other skills are so exciting and dramatic, you know, fire starting and shelter building and all these different, you know, skills that whether it's bushcrafting, primitive skills or survival skills. And it seems to me that that's always the last one. And so if I found somebody who was well-versed in wild edible plants and they taught survival skills, I made my own assumption that, okay, they, they, they went all the way through to wild edible plants. They're probably, they're probably going to be good. That That's what I used as my barometer uh, to or my filter, if you will, to figure out who can help me when I go down to some place like the jungle and I need to learn from them. I, I check and see what their edible plant knowledge is. Makes a lot of sense. Does anything properly prepare you to run from a male moose that's trying to make you his prison girlfriend? <laughs> Nothing prepares you for that. That's <laughs> the only time in all of my adventures that I've had where I actually would use the word scared because I was scared up top of that tree. That was that. That was a big beast down there full of a lot of anger. What can prepare you for that? Not much. Maybe knowledge, knowing that these things are possible and knowing how to deflect them or stay out of their way. That was, that was, and what got me in trouble that day? I got cocky. That's what got me in trouble. It's what, it's what gets everybody in trouble. You get a little, a little too, uh, a little too confident, you know, and you forget (laughs) to check all the boxes. That's interesting because in part three, where you talk about reacting, I would have assumed that that would be the most scared that you were when you're talking about the eye of the jaguar. One of the first places that you went when starting out as Survivor Man was the Amazonian rainforest, and you encountered a jaguar six or seven days into this adventure. Why is this creature so scary, generally speaking, and how did you react to that situation? So why is the jaguar so scary? Yes. Well, I don't think it is, except for the ambiance of big cats. You know, big cats are they're powerful beasts. And uh, I think if you look biologically at what's out there, big canines, bears, for example, uh, with the exception of the polar bear, you know, they have very, very, if any, interest in us at all. Uh, but big cats, you know, I mean, tigers, tigers do eat humans in India. I did a Survivor Man episode where I was, you know, surviving in a, in a spot where a big tigress had, and she had cubs. She'd already killed 22 people that year. So big cats have a bit of an ambiance of spook to them, right? You, you know, even in, in literature and lore, just the big cat can be scary. Those are big claws, you know, their hunting techniques. I wasn't actually all that, uh, you know, but just the same, not to contradict myself, but I wasn't really afraid of the Jaguar. I just knew that, okay, I need to deal with this quickly by getting out of its territory. 
that's the thing to remember too. Eh? Whenever you're out there, you're always in their territory. They're not in yours. They're not coming upon you uh, by accident on in their course of actions. You're coming upon them by accident. You're you're interfe- You're not interfering. You're um, trespassing. And so you have to remember that you have to give them their space, their birth, their their allowance that it's their place, not yours. For people listening right now, is there a good resource that you like to utilize? And this could be for kids or adults, for that matter, to really learn the wildlife that lives in their area. Oh, there's so much now. I mean, certainly online is wonderful. Online is very, very helpful. The local organizations are great. There's always going to be local outers clubs, local birders local wildlife federation they always exist river keepers you know if you if you saw the group and it's, and it's like river keeper of a certain river you know they're going to know about nature about wildlife too not just the river uh, because it's what we do we don't just like birds we like birds and bees you know sort of thing so local organizations is a great way to and, and they're easy to source now online it's really to eat, find them you know you look for those pamphlets that are at the rei store the outdoor store go there there's always pamphlets and things there because there's hikes being led as i say birding associations will will lead birder hikes oh you know another place a great place is local colleges often local colleges have those um adult learning classes after work classes and you will find classes there on things like animal tracking hmm. you know so so just that kind of research and that's how i got into you know when i when i moved away from music and got a survival, I found a little tiny course in a local college and that set me on my path. It was about wilderness survival. So, When discussing the importance of observing, you shared an anecdote from seven warm and sunny days that you spent on the Cook Islands in the South Pacific Ocean. What lesson did you learn from observing Christmas snails? Yeah, that was pretty fun, actually. It was the strangest thing I think I'd ever seen. And he's sitting there and like, what is that moving on all that shrubbery all around? Every shrub on the island was had something moving on it. And you you go in and look closer and there's all these snails slithering their way up to the top of these shrubs. And then I noticed that they always did it just before sunset. And then, you know, and so this was odd. First of all, snails doing something like that. It's not that they don't climb on plants. They do. But this was crazy because I'm talking thousands of them all at the same time. Creepy, if you will, you know, <laughs> and then what did, yeah, then, so that's, I want to tackle your, your question. That's observation, right? Observing what's going on around you. Something I, well, I already had a knowledge base from research of what should look normal. And I, my eyes picked up something that did not look normal. And that's when you start to really observe and pay attention. Of course, it ended up being that they had over hundreds of years, or at least since the time of Captain Cook's rats, uh, that that's how they got on that island, uh, was from shipping, exploration, Captain Cook's exploration. The snails had learned that if they go up to the tops of these shrubs, the rats can't eat them. Simple as that. Real simple answer. And you'd see the rats trying to jump up at them, but they just, they were just out of reach. And the, and the, and the shrubs were too spindly for the rats to climb up. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it was just a, that was a pretty uh, ingenious way of staying alive. If I'm not mistaken, you were staying on the beach as this was going on. Were the rats a threat to you at all? 
No, in fact, they they were more of an annoyance to me because they were running. <laughs> past. At some point, if I would fall asleep, they'd run and they'd jump over my legs. You know, Ugh. I know that freaks everybody out, and <laughs> but they didn't care about me. There was no disease I needed to worry about. They were just, you know, rats. Rats have a creep creep factor, I suppose, but no, no threat to me. More than 40,000 people need to be found through search and rescue missions in the United States each year. What are some of the most important things for people to do when lost in the wild to help with them being located? Unfortunately, the first part of the answer is what they're supposed to do before they go out in the wild. That's the big thing is go out letting people know where you're going, how long you're going to be, who you're with, when you expect to come back. And make sure that you have to notify them when you come back. So I, I did that. You know what? Just last week, I did a, an extra long trek with some heavy weight on my, pack, my back because I'm doing some training for some search and rescue missions. And I actually sent a text to a buddy. I said, hey, I'm going up here. Then I'm going there. And I've never gone there before. And I'm carrying 45 pounds. I'm just letting you know that if I send you a, a ping through my cell phone that I'm in trouble, I'm not joking. And my buddy is serious enough. He went, okay, let me make sure you tell me when you're up. So just doing that is huge, you know, Um, but also the communication devices, recognizing that your phone may not work, but your texting might, you know, you can get a ping out there uh, is, is important. And it's all, you know, nowadays I, I hate to say it. Well, I'm a search and rescue technician. And the reality is I shouldn't be needed anymore because there's so much great technology now that what should only ever be needed would be maybe be rescue because of injury. But searching should actually at this point be out of the game because there is so much great technology from your cell phones and GPS devices. I mean, heck, I've got a GPS caller on my dog that works with a satellite. Now, all of these things can fail. All of their batteries can die. All of these things can be lost. That's true. So search and rescue is still needed. But uh, that's a big thing know all of this new technology, have fun with it, geek out on it and, and use it because it's easier for us as search and rescue technicians to go and rescue somebody when, when we know where they are than when we're still looking for them. If all the technology fails, are there any handy things that can either be found on a person or in nature that can help out too? You know, the nature thing, I'm going to say, sure, yeah, but that takes a lot of skill, a lot of practice to know those types of things. I think what I'd like to answer you with is to say this is, look, one thing you want to do when you're in that situation and everything's failing on you is don't put yourself in deeper trouble. Don't keep pushing forward. A lot of people die because they keep pushing forward. Now, I get it. You might be 30 miles out when your car quits on you on an old dirt road because you thought you were going to go fishing or hunting in some back area. But the thing is, you know what those 30 miles are all about. And assuming you can walk, I'm always a big supporter of go back the way you can. You know what's facing you behind you. Too many people have perished because they thought, if I just go forward, I'm pretty sure I can go over that hill and uh, there'll be another road. But it's always, yeah, you're pretty sure, but do you know? <laughs> and people have died that way. So in the woods, I mean, if, if you're really down that deep in it, you know, then you have to use your ingenuity. You have to look and say, everything is something I can use here. I need a, a sleeping bag for tonight because I, I'm, I'm stuck here. It's going to get dark. I need to sleep. And I happen to be in a place that's just littered with oak leaves. Okay, make a big pile and climb in the middle. And you're now inside a sleeping bag that's actually way warmer than you might think. 
So yeah, there are lots of things that can help you in nature, but you know, you gotta, you gotta do a little bit of pre-trip training and research to know. The fourth component in surviving an adventure is adapting. What does adapting mean to you? Accepting your circumstances for one, you know, the panic thing is really dangerous. And a lot of times people, that's the first thing we do is we panic. And so actually what's the first thing you should do in a, in a survival situation or a lost situation? Don't panic. The first thing you should do is calm, calm down. And then, uh, and then you want to, uh, you want to, what I call them are the survivor man's zone of assessments uh, zones of assessment where you, you need to make a proactive decision. You can't make a proactive decision without a knowledge base. You need information. So let's calm down, take an E as they say in sports, let's get the information. And, th- and what is that? That's three zones of assessment. First thing is you, your body, what's on you, what are you wearing? What's, oh, I got a, I got a chocolate bar in my pocket and, uh, and I'm, and I'm actually dressed really warm. Uh, and, and, um, okay. And, and I got a small backpack on me and it's got some water. Okay. Zone of assessment number two is what's close at hand. Well, uh, you know, um, well, the canoe's gone. It went downstream, and I, there's a paddle left here. Okay, I got a paddle. That's not going to do much to me. But um, I'm with another person, so there's actually two of us. They've done their zone of assessment, and uh, there's we've got one pack that didn't dump. And what's in that pack? Oh, the tent's in that pack. Great. Now, there's no sleeping bags, but the tent's there and a bit more food. Okay. Zone of assessment number three. What's further afield? Well, do you remember that a mile back we passed a cabin? Oh, yeah, there is a cabin. Just, you know, can we get to it along the shoreway? Or if we walk due east, no matter what, we have to hit Highway 11. Oh, yeah, that's right. How far is it? It can't be more than a mile. We know that from our maps that we lost. Okay, so that put that all together. I got a chocolate bar. I'm dressed well. I got a buddy. We've got a tent. uh, And we know there's a cabin and we can walk to the highway. All of that together. Now you go, okay, we have knowledge. Let's make a decision. And that all took 60 seconds. Hmm. That's adapting. You had to adapt when eating a couple of different grubs in different parts of the world. They looked very similar, but the flavors couldn't be any more different. One was in the Aussie Outback, and the other was on an island in Sumatra, Indonesia. What was the difference in flavor between those two grubs? Yeah. Night and day. <laughs> yeah, the first one in Australia kind of misled me because I have to say, on the odd occasion, creepy crawlies are pretty tasty. That grub tasted fantastic. It was roasted and it tasted like, imagine a crispy pork rind with Thai peanut paste on the inside. It was pretty good. My mouth is watering and, right now at that. I know. And even scorpions, when they're roasted, taste like the little burnt ends of chicken wings. Hmm. But the grub that I had in Sumatra, which looked almost exactly like the grub in Australia, that tasted like if you took milk and put it in a plastic bag and left it out in the hot sun for two weeks and then just bit into the plastic bag, (laughs) that's what that one tasted like. (laughs) So lots of paradoxes in nature and uh, things that look beautiful that can kill you, things that look drab that you can eat, things that look drab that can kill you, things that look beautiful that you can eat. It's just, it's, it's, that's just kind of the wonderful part of it. What advice do you have for kiddos and adults who are trying maybe an unfamiliar food? Get hungry first. <laughs> you know what? After four days of being really hungry, everything starts to look and taste good. 
you spent some time on a frozen lake during the Ontario Canada winter. Why are extremely cold temperatures the toughest for you to survive? Because you can't stop surviving. There's no forgiveness time. You put me in a harsh area, but tell me that it's going to be 75 degrees Fahrenheit and it's sunny. I got forgiveness time. I can sit around and think this through. You know, you put me in a beautiful, awesome place to be, but it's below freezing. I have no forgiveness time. I am going to become hypothermic if I don't do something to get warm and stay warm. So cold, uh, you know, people might want to argue hot, you know, extremes of any kind are rough and, and super hot in in the Kalahari desert is super hot. I get that. But um, even there I could hide in, in, in a little bit of shade, but when it's cold, you just can't stop. And that's why I personally, for me, feel that anytime it's really cold, that's the toughest survival there is. So how did you keep yourself warm overnight when the temperatures dipped as low as negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit? We got single digits here in Austin last week and people were on the verge of something bad. Yeah, man, everything you can. But, you know, there's there's a few little tricks out there. I, I'm a fan of turning a solid object like rocks into water into hot water bottles. Sorry, I didn't realize you're in Austin and, and I did some news talks when the whole thing was going on. Keeping warm at night like that, when it's that cold, there are some tricks. Uh, Now, obviously, you need to have heat. You need to be able to make things hot, such as water, hot water bottles. But, you know, I remember with my kids when we would go camping, I would heat up, you know, I'd boil some water and heat up some water, and I'd pour it into a Nalgene, a hard Nalgene container. And I'd put that in their sleeping bag down by their feet, and it would warm them right right up. No, but it's not comfortable. You don't even have to touch it. It's there in the bag, and it's hot. You know, uh, so you can do that with rocks in, in the survival situation in the wilderness. You heat up rocks, not river stones, but but rocks. And um, river stones keep microscopic. There's microscopic water in river stones, and they can explode on you. But you heat up regular rocks, and to the point where they're hot, but you can touch them. Put those in your sleeping bag, and it might be a rock, but you end up snuggling it all night long. Hmm. It's really an amazing trick, actually. And then another trick, another one I didn't mention in that thing was um, the, uh, I do a, a thing when I'm in a survival situation and cold, which is horrible. I hate it. Uh, I muscle group by muscle group, slowly, I squeeze and flex and release. Squeeze. So I'll start with my toes hmm. and my feet and my calves and my quads and my buttocks and my stomach and my chest and my arms and my neck. And then I'll go back down again. All of that muscle con- contracting and releasing starts to get the blood flowing. You really, you can warm up just lying still. The last trick I do is I get up and I do jumping jacks or pushups. And uh, if you're able, that's a great way. Oh, one quick little trick. And I actually gave it when I, when I was talking to people in Texas was this. If you have some food, if you have fat food, like cheese, like a one inch block square of cheddar cheese, Eat that right as you're going to bed, in bed if you want. Just eat it right as you're going to bed. That fat will burn in your stomach all night long and keep you remarkably warm. Well, I'd be remiss to ask you for some hot weather tips, considering we are in Texas and we deal with 100-degree heat far more often than we do single-digit temperatures. So what is your advice for really hot conditions? Well, one of the things, the main thing, of course, obviously dehydration. That's huge. And I know you know that, especially being in Texas. I mean, dehydration is, it's a killer. And I think little side trick is this, is people don't realize that one of the 
greatest, I say greatest, but I guess one of the worst ways that you can become dehydrated, or at least the most effective ways to become dehydrated, is through the wind, convection. The wind sucks the moisture right out of your skin. It's very effective at sucking that moisture right out of you. And so even when it's really hot, if you actually wear a light protective shirt, you help to stop that convection drying. And, mm-hmm. and you, you know, if you're a lot of people, want, we might just want to go shirtless. So, oh, it's hot. I'm just going to take my shirt off. But you're going to dehydrate faster with your shirt off. And you're also possibly going to end up sunburned too, which just adds and a whole nother level of challenge, right? Right. But some people might be okay with the sun or they slather up a sunblock and, or whatever. But I'm saying that, that that wind convection, that breeze sucks the moisture right out of you. Good to know. You admit growing up that you idolized Jacques Cousteau and Tarzan the Ape Man. Do you feel like you've grown up to be a pretty good blend of those two guys? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Trey, really, if you think about it, what is Survivor Man if not a hybrid of Jacques Cousteau and Tarzan? I mean... That was my, <laughs> yeah, that was my childhood dream and i don't know how it ended up happening but it did many years later but it did yes it is the hybrid i think that's by design at least subconscious design and final question less we had max brooks on the show about a year ago it was he was uh, planning on being in town for south by southwest of course covid ruined all of our plans in 2020 he said the greatest validation that he received with his book devolution which was a great book was getting the thumbs up from you that it was authentic so i have to ask you as somebody who takes a lot of pride in the interviews that i conduct with authors do i get the thumbs up for this conversation you do because you've asked me at least two questions that I've never got before, and that's always important to me. And also, you didn't ask me about Bigfoot, so big kudos there. <laughs> but I will add, since you brought up Max Brooks, that I will have coming out soon on uh, American Public Television is a new special called Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud. I actually interview Max for that special, 90-minute special, and it's all about how to deal with natural disasters just like you went through, just like the pandemic just like Hurricane Michael, all of them. And uh, it'll be coming out in June, and it speaks directly to everybody, especially where you guys live. And where can people see that, Les? American Public Television, so a PBS station near you. Les Stroud is a survival expert, filmmaker, author, and musician who's best known as the sole force behind the Survivor Man TV series. His new book is called Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man. Les, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Please do check us out at booksonpod.com. You can hear all of our episodes there as well as subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.